news drives markets. And every day, Montel's experienced reporters are on top of the stories that shape European market developments. Can you afford to miss out? Go to montelnews.com for the latest price-driving stories and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. In this week's pod, we return to the world of PPAs to discuss the growth of green energy and the ways in which companies can get on board the renewables train on course for net zero. How can more firms lower their carbon footprint and contribute to the decarbonisation, not just of the continent, but of the globe? Joining me, Richard Sverison, to discuss this is Andrea Grotzke of Baiwa. She has a lengthy CV in this field and, and the company is a large and important player in the renewable sector, not just in Europe, but also globally. So a warm welcome to you, Andrea. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. And thanks for inviting me. I'm very happy to be in your podcast today. Excellent. How, how's life in, uh, in where you are in Germany at the moment? Well, at the moment, uh, life is beautiful because summer has, uh, has, has come up uh, at last. Uh, so it's 30 degrees already. It's sunny and uh, the weekend is just ahead of us. So a good, uh, good day to go. Excellent. Excellent. If we can start off by talking a little bit about yourself, Andrea, you have quite a long experience in the renewable sector. How, how has it changed for you in the last sort of um, 10, 20 years? Yeah, it has uh, changed uh, tremendously, I would say. I mean, when I started in 2003 uh, to work in the renewable energy space, I kind of advised developers and, and financial institutions how uh, they shall finance um, renewable energy projects. So that was that was quite a quite an interesting start because then you had really had to talk about ring fencing projects, you had to talk about cash flow security and all that, and then the sector became more and more sophisticated. And eventually, we also started to talk about well, uh, we just don't produce just energy, but uh, we also have to sell energy, <laughs> and that <laughs> actually brought me. I think it was eight years ago. It brought me uh, to the PPA topic where we Bewa did quite a lot of project in the UK where we had to sell the power to um, utilities or to corporates. And that's where my first uh, connection to the PPA topic was. And since then, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that more and more corporates, especially in the last three to four years, they came on the table and they were interested in buying renewable energy. And now, I mean, we can see the huge wave which is coming and uh, which really is, is interesting from a, from a developer's perspective, but also, of course, with respect to energy transition, uh, which we definitely need in order to prevent climate change. Absolutely. What would you say were the main reasons for this sort of change or this kind of increased interest from corporates in the renewable space? Well, first, first of all, I mean, from a technology perspective, I can clearly say, and that and that particular applies to solar, that the LCOE, so, so the capex for constructing a solar plant really decrease significantly. So in the end, now you can say renewable energy from PV is really affordable. And in many countries, we are even cheaper than conventional energy. So that's, of course, an interesting business case, uh, which the corporates have, at, have now. And then on the other hand, as I said, there is the pressure from society on global brands uh, so that they have to really think about targets in order to reduce their carbon footprint. And that comes together very nicely. So you've seen the sort of 
progress of a world of subsidies to, you know, the possibility of very much subsidy-free kind of space now. What, what have been your highlights in this, in this journey, Andrea? Yeah, well, actually, we, we, we indeed had a, had a couple of highlights, um, and that goes across the globe, I would say. I mean, we, we are active in Asia, in particular in Australia. We are also active in the Americas. We signed a, nice, uh, a couple of nice deals in the US. Uh, the last one was uh, with Hershey Chocolate two months ago on a 15 years basis, and we had um, a PPA signed with various parties in the US. And then moving to Europe, we had recently signed a PPA in Poland. That's the first subsidy-free solar PPA, 64 megawatt peak plant, which shall be connected hopefully in the next uh, one to two months. And um, mm. that is with Heidelberg Cement. Um, so that was that was our recent deal. We had a quite a nice, and this is this is interesting from a European perspective. We have signed a, a virtual PPA with AB InBev last year which allowed ABNBEV to transfer certificates across the border to other countries. So it was a project in Spain and the settlement on the electricity price happens in Spain, but the certificates are transferred in the countries where ABNBEV need to cancel them. Okay. These are certificates of origin, guarantees of origin. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So obviously, Baywa is a, is a leading global player in, in the renewables space, but um what, what for you are the most interesting markets going forward? I mean, you've highlighted some some key deals, and I think the Polish solar one is, is certainly important. What for you and and personally and the company are other interesting uh, markets? Yeah, that's a good one, and uh, it's um, obviously. I mean, there are markets which are. I think everybody knows that it's interesting to to look into the corporate PPA space, but maybe I just before we go into the markets in more detail, what we should distinguish is still the technology. So, I mean, we, we do develop solar and wind projects, and there is a, quite a significant difference still with respect to corporate PPA potential. So, for wind projects, uh, we still rely in quite a number of markets on tariff and tender systems. So, that's still quite helpful for the wind side uh, to have them in place. We are more flexible in solar. And uh, obviously, we do, especially, for instance, in Poland. I mean, in Poland, there is a tender system, but we explicitly decided to go uh, the corporate PPA route because we believe that this is more attractive for us. It's more flexible for us. And I mean, Poland will stay a very interesting market and we are working, uh, I mean, we are expanding our pipeline and we're working on new deals, which will hopefully come through uh, soon. Our core market is still Spain, where we have a huge pipeline and where we are working on deals, uh, also on quite interesting deals, also with respect to baseload appetite from our clients where we then structure a baseload product uh, for them based on, on a solar curve. So that is that is quite interesting. So these are, at the moment, our core markets. Germany is interesting because uh, there is a lot of appetite uh, from CNI clients, uh, from industrial clients. However, project development in uh, Germany is, well, it's challenging because of long permitting procedures, etc. So it's a little bit lacking behind. So I think these three, I guess it's uh, it's the most important ones for for us. Although there are some, let me say, hidden champions like uh, Denmark, uh, for instance, because if you look at LCEs or production costs uh, for solar, and this this frontier, the LCE frontier, I call it, is moving up north. <laughs> so we really can afford developing solar PV also in Denmark and selling the power to corporates. This is the levelized cost of, of yes, uh, yeah. energy. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit interested here then, Andrea, in, in the tenders versus PPAs. 
How do they interact and what makes one company go for tender and the other one for PPA? So in a country like Poland, is it all about, I mean, can't all just be about costs because surely then the tender would be cheaper? Yeah, that's a good question, Richard. My interpretation is that it has a lot to do with experience to go the route to market and also how you can connect to corporate buyers and the way we have established our teams within Beba, we have a really a dedicated sales team who sells energy solutions. And that's not only offsite or corporate PPAs, it's also on-site solutions. So we have a we have a portfolio of solutions which we can offer corporate. So we are very flexible in in approaching them and, and trying to understand what they need. And that mm. also connects us in a different way than just a pure developer who has obviously also a very extensive knowledge on developing and realizing projects, but selling the power is a capability which also needs to be developed. And um, from my perspective, this is probably the main difference between the market players. Mm. But in terms of decarbonizing industry, Andrea, what, what are the challenges here? Because obviously some industries, you know, you can decarbonize much quicker, much more effectively than others. That's an interesting question, Richard. I think it, it's it's definitely various aspects. I mean, overall, if you, if you talk about decarbonizing, that you should also talk about heat, right? Mm. At the moment, we just talk about renewable energy because that's what the majority of the companies are focusing on at the moment. But now we come more and more also to the discussion around, I mean, that that also is connected to the hydrogen debate, which is uh, quite active at the moment, mm -hmm. because we see that, and, and if you look at the numbers, that heat has a very, very significant impact on the overall carbon footprint. According to the International Energy Agency, um, heat accounts for approximately 50% of the global final energy consumption and uh, contributes 40% of the global carbon dioxide emissions. And about 50% of that total heat produced was used for industrial processes. You, so you really see that uh, this has such a significant um, impact on the overall carbon footprint that eventually we also really have to think about how do we reduce those emissions. And um, this is something which has just been tackled now because the renewable energy discussion is still very heavily ongoing. And coming back to that, it really depends on, on how a company is steered and how the targets are set and then how they are implemented. And this is what we, what we see that the, really the challenge is uh, for companies to overcome internal obstacles in order to bring all stakeholders on the table to make sure that the target can really put into implementation because if you look into into the contracts they have to sign, that's long-term contracts as 10, 15 years contracts, whereas they were used to procure energy on a on a one, two or three years basis. And now they really have to connect uh, on a much longer term, which is, well, the risk assessment uh, for these type of contracts, it's quite challenging for the companies. So this is, this is a very important aspect, which I see. And then what is also quite interesting, that's the scope one, two, and three emissions debate. At the moment, well, the majority of the companies, I would say they cover the scope one and two emissions. So that's the emissions they produce themselves or they produce via procuring the power. But the supply chain, for instance, is covered in scope three. And this, is, this, this would then be the next steps for many companies uh, who have kind of well, met the scope one and two targets. And if you, for instance, if you look in the apparel industry, 
approximately 90%, very roughly, <laughs> of the emissions lie in the supply chain. And uh, if you then keep be stay or if you stay in the in the supply in, in the apparel industry, if you see that the supply chain sits in Asia mainly, then you have to think about how do you tackle those scope three emissions from Asian companies. And this is quite quite a huge, huge step, which we also have to take in order to meet the overall targets. So that's if I'm a, a clothing retailer, for example, in Europe, I, if I want to decarbonize, as you say, I have to look at you know the sites in Asia as well as the way it's transported, uh, etc., throughout the whole supply chain. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And it has to be pushed down to the local companies who sit in Bangladesh, who sit in Vietnam, in Indonesia, and this is this is this is quite challenging because um, and then you also talk about solvency of those companies and how do you how how can you can you overcome or how can you in, enable investments by those companies? It's it's quite interesting and there's brands start to look into that and push also very hard on that end. You mentioned hydrogen, Andrea. I just want to touch upon that. I mean, it, we could probably spend several podcasts talking about it, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, there's now it's become should we say quite a hot topic, a, a lot of focus suddenly on green hydrogen, you know, got strategies and plans and people, you know, putting forward proposals and projects left, right and center. But how realistic is this? And is it is it really the magic bullet that it's supposed to be? I mean, I'm thinking in terms of the uses of hydrogen in either transportation or, or heat. I mean, does it does it make sense? Or is electrification the answer? Oh, I guess it makes sense. I mean, I, I believe that hydrogen will be a very important puzzle in that challenge. This is what I believe. And so we have to make it happen, and uh, especially in industrial processes. And um, of course, I mean, it has to, uh, the technology has to, has to get cheaper. And then we have to think about transport costs uh, mm. or not transport costs, but the way of transporting hydrogen. And then, of course, at the beginning of the of the chain uh, lies, of course, the tremendous amount of renewable energy which we need, and this is something which is getting to be very interesting. And then we will we will see countries where eventually we will use for producing renewable energy. But as the bits and pieces are not really clear yet, and I fully agree what you said that it's quite. I mean, there are so many uh, so many activities and and initiatives and all that, which really have to. I mean, they have to sort it, kind of sort it, or the industry has to play a key, key role here also to, to give guidance. I think it needs pilot projects to understand how this really works and how the stakeholders can, can play together. And then I think it will come step by step. So we will, we will see in 10 years' time, we will have a, quite an interesting volume of produced green hydrogen. That's what I believe. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if we sort of meet up again in 10 years time, Andrea, and see what actually was realized and, and what wasn't. But um, if we return to the subject of PPA, so what is the significance of a PPA? And I want to talk a little bit more about financing here and, and getting more maybe smaller and medium sized companies on, on board. So what, what's the significance of a PPA in order to get a project financed? Well, it's still significant element because it's the cash flow securing element and that's i mean that's in the end the bottom line right that it again it comes back to how the contracts are structured whether it's one company or whether it's uh, several companies also several companies if you if you structure the the portfolio accordingly then it might also be an in interesting from an from a risk perspective so so in the end it's it's really 
coming down to specific clauses in the in the contract uh, to make sure that the cash flow is secured from a from a from a financing perspective but we also see i mean if if i if i compare to to the discussions we had with financing institutions 8 years ago <laughs> in the UK where we started and now the discussions with investors or also with banks i mean a lot have, has changed so the community has learned we all have learned to to evaluate the risks and uh, now it's it's even more like when i look on from from the project perspective and from an investor's perspective that it's more like managing the chance of rising electri- electricity prices and at the same time giving a certain cash flow security so I think that's that's quite interesting uh, how this has developed so that you that the risk appetite also has to be met so that means that you not necessarily need to contract 100% of the generation with a PPA you could leave some merchant exposure in the project so also to take away the market chances another aspect that I'd like to touch upon because you mentioned you know the prospect of rising prices but there's also the contrary is true in some some areas where you have you know, massive rollout of either wind or solar, which has the combined effect of driving prices down, the so-called cannibalization effect. How do you deal with that? How much of a problem is that? Yes, it is. It can be an issue. And uh, we see that in particular in Spain, if I look into numbers or if if I look into forecasts, for instance, Pexapark does those kind of forecasts, um, you can clearly see that there is a significant impact of PV employment in Spain. So if I compare, for instance, the value of PV as a captured price, if I compare that with a baseload price, then in 2024, for instance, it's the captured price is 94% of the baseload price, whereas in 31, it's uh, predicted. However, it's just a prediction or it's just a forecast. It's only 70%. So it's a significant decrease of PV value in Spain. If I look into other countries, it's not as significant. For instance, Italy and Germany, this negative impact is, I mean, it doesn't change much between 2024 and 23. So it really depends on the expected deployment of the technology in the country. And obviously, I mean, this comes back to to also like the, uh, how can I say? I mean, every everybody tries to do business in Spain now on the PV side. And that is that is the result. Absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, we're seeing very, very robust spot prices and also forward prices across Europe at the moment, you know, so that's also that's also interesting. We're coming to the end, hopefully, of, of the global pandemic. How do you view the post-COVID-19 recovery in terms of renewables growth? I mean, we have all the recovery funds. Now we saw uh, this week uh, them being granted to approval for Spain and Portugal. There's a lot of EU money floating around here. How do you assess the post-COVID-19 sort of recovery uh, and once we get out of that in terms of renewables expansion in Europe? I mean, the renewables are a clear winner of, of the pandemic, if I can say that. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's proven that, well, sustainability matters are an important factor in the global society. And we see, I mean, we, we see that corporates, despite the pandemic, they have still continued to, uh, to work on executing their target. We saw an ever-increasing appetite for renewable energy. We see, as you mentioned already, we see at the moment market prices rising in every forecast, at least as long as it goes as the market visibility or the electricity price visibility goes in the respective countries. So that's what we see. 
On the other side, uh, what we also, uh, I mean, what everybody now has understood <laughs> that costs, uh, production costs, module costs, transport costs, they are also on the rise at the moment. So this is something which, and also availability of components could be an issue for the next one to two years, which could slow down the deployment a bit. But on the other hand, in the long run, I don't see this as an issue. So this will be levelized again. And yeah, I think that's that's the summary. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think there is, you know, as you said, some supply issues with some components in the process there of expanding renewables or building building out more wind turbines and solar panels. But you also mentioned, interestingly, uh, in, in Germany, you know, the permitting problems. Is this something that's causing also a real, or is it a big obstacle in in the progression of of, of renewables growth and PPA deals in particular in in some countries? Yeah, definitely. I mean, regulatory um, topics or long processes, that's that's always at least what <laughs> what developers complain about. Mm. Because, I mean, we see we see the appetite on the offtake side and uh, we I mean, we have the, the ability to build out and to develop and to build out projects. So so really want to push things forward. And uh, so this is definitely something which uh, which we also address regularly to to the respective uh authorities or associations to really make sure that that this is uh, that this is seen that this is reflected and this is discussed in the on on the various levels um because we believe that uh, if we become quicker if we uh, can build out our pipelines then we can contribute to the energy transition even better the 100 million dollar question is how do you speed up that process how do you bridge those regulatory yeah. uh, hurdles? You know, yeah. how, what's yeah. the best way to do that? Consistently being at the front of things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Andrea, thank you very much for, for joining the Monta podcast this week. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on board. Thank you very much, Richard. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Monta Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.